Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris, and I am joined, as usual, by my wonderful co-host, Tom. Hello. And we watched David Cronenberg's 1991 film, Naked Lunch. Yes, we did. One that uh, I remember the last episode you were saying you had been purposely putting off watching because... Uh, you knew it was coming up. Yeah, uh, well, we, you know, we started the podcast so long ago. Mm, yeah. And uh, about three years ago, I realized that it was in the 200s, which in my mind at the time was like, oh, that's not too far away. <laughs> Cut to three years later. Three years later, it's here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'd always been wanting and meaning to watch this film. I love Cronenberg so much. Yes. What would you say is your, like, if you had to pick, like, a favorite Cronenberg, where would you go? Uh, probably... Uh, Videodrome? Yep. I think so. Like, yeah. They're all kind of special in their own way. Mm. And they're all distinct, distinctly Cronenberg. I, I love, let's call it absurdist surrealism. Yeah. See, yeah, I think I, like, my go-to is probably Scanners, I would say. I'm a, I'm a big I'm, fan of Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really well, like everyone Scanners. Everyone likes, is that, that's the, the head explosion. Oh, the greatest head explosion in cinema history. Everybody loves that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Videodrome, probably a close second, and then, like, The Brood, but, um... Yeah, I was really intrigued to hear what you, you thought of this one, um, because I have some kind of thoughts of where this kind of falls in the Cronenberg canon and things as well, so... Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the tagline is exterminate all rational thought. Yes. So, I, don't, I think that going into this, I was thinking, I mean, we know it's Cronenberg, so you go like, well, we'll take it at face value and see what happens. Yeah. But I suppose we should do a, a, a synopsis. Mm-hmm. Do you want to try? Do you want me to try? Uh, I'm intri- uh, I mean, I don't mind. <laughs> the film follows William Lee, a bug exterminator. There mm-hmm. is roaches everywhere. There's a bug problem in the big city. New York? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, he gets uh, addicted to roach powder uh, because it's amazing, apparently. And uh, he proceeds to, in a game of, of William Tell, mm-hmm. shoot, attempt to shoot a glass off his wife's head but in- instead shoots her in the head yeah. and kills her. And then he gets kind of pulled into some strange spy plot. <laughs> the, the espionage begins. Or, and where, that's right. And they and through. these agents <laughs> of, of some kind of buggy nature wish that he go into the interzone mm-hmm. to report back against what I assume is evil human centipedes. Or, or just a, a, or something against the age, the things, yeah, the things, the evil things. Yeah, it's never really exactly kind of said, yeah, explicitly, but so yeah. I assume evil human centipedes, mm-hmm. OG, the original human centipede. <laughs> yeah, that's what Julian Sands turns into when he um <laughs> when he has sex with Kiki later in the birdcage. <laughs> I don't like that. I did not like that. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a bit upsetting, but um. So the the plot, yeah, the plot is kind of pretty crazy. Yeah. Okay. On that note, um, I was uh, I ended up because uh, I am a longtime fan of this film. I'm Cronenberg, so I've got the Criterion Edition itself. So I was looking. I rewatched the uh, the making of that comes on there. It's like a vintage making of from like '92 or something, and I had to write down a quote about what Cronenberg, how he talked about like the writing process of trying to adapt this film, uh, this novel to to the screen, because he initially kind of said 
there is like it's it's unfilmable. Like there is no way you could do a literal adaptation. It would be you know five hundred hours, like you know five hours long, just epic. You know, be ridiculous. Um, so, in adapting it, he created what he called a metatextual adaptation. So it's not just an adaptation of Naked Lunch, but it involves a whole bunch of other writings by Burroughs and also autobiographical elements of Burroughs' life. So it's an attempt to take his life and his work and put it into a single Try and film. construct a narrative a, a, and kind of draw from that. It's really very ambitious. Yeah, and so uh, this is a quote from Cronenberg. Um, I knew that I wanted to have a narrative... <laughs> I knew that I wanted it to have narrative cohesiveness. It wasn't just going to be a movie that cost X amount of million dollars, uh, and therefore it has to have one. Of, oh, it, and therefore it has to have those things in it. It was my desire to do that, and I wanted to do that. So, according to Cronenberg, this film has more narrative cohesion than anything else he's done, and clearly makes sense and has a proper through line that is explained totally. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And I will agree. Like, I just found that thought that was kind of fun because it is like, it is definitely way less complex than a lot of his other films, but it is still like Tom just trying to explain the plot. <laughs> then is yeah it, yeah okay. I I think that it does have a narrative flow that is yes. somewhat simple if you pay attention and you really have to pay attention. It, it demands multiple repeat viewings to kind of pick up. And, and I think as well, it also demands a knowledge of Burroughs as a writer and as a human being to totally get. As well as Cronenberg as well, I think. I think, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, so, I, so I watched the film yep. and I was like, how am I going to make... <laughs> how I, what, what do I make of this? Yes. And my first, my first point of action was I got to go and look up William Burroughs. Yes. And go back to the source material to try and figure it out. And if you do that, if you go to his life in particular, mm-hmm. then this film starts to make a, a lick of sense, a little bit of a lick of sense. Sure does. Um, let's go. Let's go into here. I think we've got to start with yes, very Burroughs first, very much so, and then we can move into I think Cronenberg, and then the film. Like those are the steps you kind of have to take wading into the pool that is Naked Lunch. Yeah. So first of all, Burroughs. <laughs> Just, wait, before we get into this, um, at the end of last week's like last episode, I pulled the Simpsons quote that them sneaking in to see it with the fake ID and Nelson saying, "I can think of at least two things wrong with that title." Yeah. Do you get now how good that joke is? Yeah. <laughs> they, the, three of the, the four of them went and saw this. Yeah. Uh, no one's really having lunch. Peter Weller eats a pretzel at one point, but... Half, half-heartedly because he's real high. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> anyway, sorry, I derailed. Well, I, mean, I think the, the title... Let's, let's start there. The title of the novel mm. was conceived before it was ever written... And William Esper, I think it was, I can't remember who actually said, you should call it The Naked Lunch, whatever, you're doing the next one. I believe it's, it was Ginsberg. Alan Ginsberg? It was Ginsberg, yeah. 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 And Ginsberg helped him compile all the writings. Okay. Uh, so he throws out, you should call your next one The Naked Lunch, and mm. Burroughs says, yeah, fuck it, all right. Yeah. What's it going to be about? Well, not anything lunchy, on, and there's going to be a little bit of nakedness, but it's going to be attached to a... Some kind of typewriter with buttocks. Yes. And, yeah. The good old whistling asshole story and things. Oh, it's so, so <laughs> fucking great. Yeah. 
Oh, um, but I sorry, I derailed you kind of uh, just before. Like, so uh, diving into Burroughs, what did you kind of find? Yeah, so he he was addicted to morphine, and he even sold heroin to support his habit. Mm-hmm. So he's already kind of knows about addiction, drug drug use, and addiction. Uh, I mean, in there, there's your bug powder plotline, and what was the other one called? The black centipede powder. Uh, the, yeah, the black meat. Black meat, yeah. So there's that. There's also, I think, the the biggest one, uh, and this is uh, Judy Davis's character, Joan Lee slash Joan mm-hmm. Frost. Mm-hmm. Joan, named after Joan Volmer. Yes. Who is, is kind of his wife. His de facto wife. Right. Uh, or common law wife. They'd been together long enough that in the eyes of the law that they were mm-hmm. married. Yep. And they played the William Tell game. Yeah, they were at a party in... Uh, they were in Mexico at the time. They were at a party and uh, apparently super drunk when they arrived. And then Burroughs can, continued to have, I think, six or seven more drinks. And then out of nowhere, Joan said, let's do our... I think it's about time for our William Tell trick. Mm-hmm. And put glass on her head and... If you've seen the film, yeah, like you yeah. know what happened. He That's right. Accidentally shot her in the face. Um, later, it turns out like this was something that they'd never done before in the past. This wasn't like a regular routine thing for them. She just out of nowhere did it, and uh, it turns out Burroughs was normally uh, it was actually a really good shot. Like he'd been trained and things and knew how to use a gun, but just was that drunk that accidents. Shot her in the- yeah, accidents shot her in happen. The- um, and so he ended up um, going to trial for manslaughter uh, and then fled Mexico, uh, I think was given two years probation and fled Mexico and went back to the US. And he started writing. And then uh, moved to Tangiers for a little while, which is where, and he lived in an area called the International Zone, uh-huh. which is where uh-huh. Interzone comes from as well. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and just continued to write. I met another writer couple there uh, who are the facts and leads for Tom and Joan later in the film. Okay, and well, that's he, Alan Ginsberg and... No, that's uh, Tom and Joan is Ian Holm and Judy Davis. Right. Number right, two. Right. Sorry, yeah. yes. Um, uh, Martin and... Hank. Hank are facts and leads for Alan Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Okay. Yeah. Burroughs was kind of like the the godfather symbol of the beat movement in literature in the 50s. So he was kind of the elder statesman and like, because he was a little bit older than all of these other people. So they were the one he looked up to. And then um, Ginsburg was eventually the one who, uh, when Burroughs was sending his writings back to Ginsburg, as similar to kind of in the film as well, mm. uh, helped him compile them and then um, sent helped him uh, through Ginsburg's French publisher, of his work got Naked Lunch finally published. Well, Burroughs didn't... He wasn't really a writer before. I mean, he Mm -mm. liked writing, but he didn't really do anything uh, before the murder of his his de facto wife. And I believe he came from money as well. Like, not money money, but he was, you know, reasonably well off. I could be wrong about that, but... Yeah. I have a feeling he, like, you know, he wasn't just, like, a random street guy. Like, he was kind of, you know, well-to-do-ish... New York. Upper middle class, whatever. Yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Mm. Uh, Burroughs is quoted as saying, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death. Yes. So when he was younger, he would write diaries and he was probably quite a good writer. Mm. Um, but also, this is another thing that leads into to the film. Uh, he's also gay. I think from, from what I'm gathering is he's he at puberty discovers that he likes men, right? Yeah. 
and he's writing in his diary about a crush that he has uh, of another guy and people find out and it's humiliating for him and so he stops writing mm. and not, won't, won't really write again until after Joan's death but it seemed like he was kind of gay but also maybe confused a little bit mm-hmm. and hence he has because it was not like a societal and, kind of norm at those like you know yeah, yeah it was right. something that was yeah. that's right and so you get that that flavor of oh we should peter um you get that flavor of william lee saying well the best the best way to get through this is to to become a, a homosexual and pretend and homosexuality the is the best cover an agent can ha- an operative can have is yeah. what his typewriter gets him to type into him and have an orgasm while he types it that's right <laughs> That's that's right, uh, and and I mean really, there's there's that sequence with the young the young fellow from the Interzone, uh, and they Kiki Kiki, uh, and you know they're they're having a relationship, and William Lee is enjoying it. Mm. So it's almost like it's a repressed homosexuality for him. I mean, the the question is, is everything in the Interzone, or the whole fucking movie? Just a, a, a drug-addled hallucination. Yes. And it's all just his, like, sexual repression coming out. Mm. And it's all of his his feelings towards the, the death of his... The murder of his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know. It, it's... Okay. How deep does this rabbit hole go? Yeah. Before we get jump onto the film, I just kind of want to put one little capper thing on Burroughs himself. And in particular, the publication of Naked Lunch and how it was kind of compiled. So, after... Sending some writing samples across to Ginsburg's um, French publisher who'd agreed to kind of publish the work. They were like, cool, yep, you need to finalise this. And so Ginsburg helped um, Burroughs get kind of everything in order and finish off all these writing samples. And as they would finish a chapter, they would send that one off to the publisher. Like, yep, that, that, that part's done, that part's done, that part's done. And then when they got them all back from the publisher, they they would then kind of put it into some semblance of an order, but they just decided, you know what, as pieces come back, that's how it goes. Like, so that, it really, so his book, the book itself is kind of all over the place in terms of, like, narratives and short stories and just, like, kind of weaving everything together. Just letting... Ch- I mean, they, did they tell the publisher that that's what they're going to do? Or it's just... Not really. It's kind and of then game. they just kind of did it, and I think Burroughs said the only thing that they did change was uh, the final chapter of the book was initially the first chapter, and they kind of just swapped it. That's great. Put it at the end. Well, at the start of the film, uh, I, I can't remember if it's Hank or Martin, but they're having a discussion on, on whether you should rewrite something. Yes. Whether you should... Re- if you, re- if you were to rewrite some piece of literature that you have written, are you censoring yourself? Yeah, which is a giant argument, I think, coming from Kerouac, like the facsimile for Kerouac, because he was the father of stream-of-conscious writing. Okay. Like, if you read On the Road, that is was written on one giant spool of paper, and it was just a stream-of-consciousness, like, flowing this story out, and you don't go back, and you don't stop, and you just keep going. You don't edit, you just let it out. Yeah. In terms of its construction and the weird drug-addled um, creation of this journey, it's very fear and loathing in Las Vegas to me. I get a little bit of that. Mm. Oh, very much so, it's yeah. It's like the whole, like, is it real? Is it hallucination? Where, and it's very literary and, like, where are you going? What are we doing? Yeah, and yeah. just, like, sending off... On like, a weird what, journey. Get, yeah, it's just, like, spitting it out and passing it on and not even reading it. Mm. Somebody else collecting it and going. Good. The reports yeah. that he, that William Lee writes. Well, whatever it is, he's sending back to his mate that he's been collecting. He's like, I've never read <laughs> these pages, and he's like, 
Yeah, well, that that is like essentially him sending the pages that would become Naked Lunch back to Ginsburg. He's like, "This stuff's great. You should, we should. I'll talk to my publisher." Like that's all the metatextual stuff that is actually autobiographical to Burroughs, not actually from the novel that Cronenberg's kind of all weaving into this tapestry to make this weird, wonderful, unique film. Yeah. Um, final quote from Cronenberg, which is like a nice segue into the film, if you like. Yes, go on. Uh, he said he... Uh, it meant uh, making this, like adapting it, uh, it meant that I was going to be forced to do something else. Fuse my own sensibilities, my filmic sensibilities, and my other sensibilities with those of Burroughs and create a third thing that neither he or I would have done on our own. So Burroughs was still alive when this film was made and uh, had a complete... Cronenberg had his complete blessing and Cronenberg would run past drafts of the script and ideas and what he was doing to Burroughs, who was like, go for it, man. But was it a collaboration in yes, any sense? Yes, uh, Cronenberg ended up writing... Like, Burroughs doesn't have a screenwriting credit. He didn't sit down and write the script, but he helped kind of uh, Cronenberg create the narrative and kind of weave and give him, I guess, permission and, like, license to do and, like, incorporate him and let's, his life into... Let's create a third thing out of these... Yeah, let's take my sensibilities, your sensibilities, and let's create something new from those that is half Cronenberg, half Burroughs. It's not totally one or the other. It's its own so, weird third beast. So it's very unique in the sense that this film is unique in the sense that you don't normally have a filmmaker say, let's take a book and not just adapt it, but and not even turn it into a, an adaptation of, of the book. Mm. Let's turn it into something completely strange and let's and push it to, to beyond the book. Yes. Very rare. Yeah, very much so. It, it makes me think it's something like what... If he had the time and money and passion to do, it's like what we could have gotten with David Lynch doing Dune. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, if, if studios didn't get... <laughs> if it wasn't de- for Dino De Laurentiis and things, yeah. Yeah. Alas. But, alas. <laughs> alas. <laughs> but anyway, we digress. So, yeah, that, that brings us to the film, this weird, wonderful kind of third creation from these two great artists. Yeah. I suppose uh, I'd like to to start with the opening because I wasn't expecting the score to be so free great. flow jazz. I, yeah, I don't normally like jazz. I like kind yeah. of trad jazz here and there. Yeah, because it's not a fucking hot steaming chaotic mess. But having said that, uh, chaotic free flow jazz mm. is so perfect for the score of this movie, and it starts with uh, I, who I don't know who did the. Um, the graphics. Saul ba- uh, no, I sorry. The ind- <laughs> I jumped in ahead of time. Um, I thought you were going to say who did the graphics <laughs> for like Psycho or all these old Hitchcock films, which was Saul Bass, yeah. and that's specifically what Cronenberg is doing. He's doing that as an homage to these old fifties title sequences. Okay, and that's as well. The right. music is a conscious choice because of where the espionage plot ends up going to try and infuse it with the... Because the film is set in 1953, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so he's trying to infuse it with all these cinematic tropes of films from that era. Okay. Yes. That's nice. <laughs> it's kind of unlike anything you hear Howard Shaw do. Like, to think that this guy doing all this weird jazz would then go on to do the Lord of the Rings music and stuff. <laughs> like, it's kind of amazing. But Howard Shaw worked on 
all of Cronenberg's films? Every single one. Yeah. They um, knew each other from, I think, film like, you know, way the fuck back in um, kind of early Canadian filmmaking. And I think, oh, I want to say te- Canadian television. Yeah. They kind of met and started collaborating and, yeah, worked all throughout their careers together. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's really successful at producing uh, a tone, a musical tone that, that fits the scenery, mm-hmm. time setting, and the subject matter. Yes. Being that you're in the, you're, you're kind of watching some drug-addled brain explode. And just kind of go in whatever direction it feels. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. It's really good. Uh, so yeah, I, I, all of a sudden I like jazz now. Awesome. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I'll get you onto some Kamasi Washington and things. <laughs> uh, oh, it was, well, the, the score was performed by uh, Ornette Coleman. Yes. Um, jazz musician. Mm-hmm. And there's a piece, Midnight Sunrise, in there, but that's from the album Dancing in Your Head, right? I believe so, yeah. Which, by that title, is mm. just perfect for the film as well, subject matter-wise. And also, Burroughs was at the um, recording of that album as well. I did not know that. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, he was present during the recordings. So, and I mean, he's obviously a jazz... He obviously loves jazz, yeah. right? Is that So that's just another meta-textual level that Cronenberg's <laughs> kind of thrown into the mix of, like... Yeah. Yeah, well, it not only fits the... What we just explained, it not only fits all those other Ooh. things... But also the fact that Burroughs is a massive jazz fan as well. So yeah. Let's talk about Burroughs as well. So, um, so we've 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 gotten past the opening credits. <laughs> um, Plug powder. Yes. Well, I was going to use that to jump into then um, Peter Weller. Yeah. And how amazing he is in this film. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Perfect. Yes. Uh, did you know he turned down RoboCop three to do this? That's fine. That is a wonderful choice. <laughs> yeah. Because Robo- well, it might have been better. RoboCop three might have been better with him in it. No, RoboCop three is a giant steaming pile of shit. <laughs> I'm saying it would have been better with him in it. It just because no, <laughs> not even like it's RoboCop fun. does not need to fight ninjas and fly around on a jetpack. <laughs> oh, well, I agree with you on ninjas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so says like 90% of the population that movie is trash I agree with you on the ninjas part but not the jetpack part <laughs> anyway anyway Peter Wellers yeah he, he is as great as Robocop but he is better as uh, William Lee the, mm-hmm. the monotone the like the lazy the lazy mannerism of speech <sighs> it's just so fucking beautiful. great yeah uh, the film I mean it's like a coloured version of an old film noir mm. you know and his his style of like putting forward some kind of dreary eyed, monotonous agent. He nails the on heroin look as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's I think so it's good. such a wonderful choice to because obviously Bill Lee is a facsimile for William Burroughs. Like that is who the protagonist is. And I think it's so great that he doesn't... And not saying that there's anything wrong with this, but that he doesn't do like a Johnny Depp in Fear and Loathing, where he's just doing an accurate impersonation of William Burroughs. He's created his own character that is Bill Lee. He's not, yeah, sitting there trying to perfect and imitate Burroughs' voice or his mannerisms or anything. He's like, no, like, the way we're paying homage to Burroughs is 
this character he created, which isn't, which is him, but isn't him. So I, it's open to interpretation and how I'm going to play it. And yeah. he nails it. Oh, is there anything on in the Criterion um, edition that details why Peter Weller made the decisions that he did? Uh, I'm sure there's an audio commentary with Cronenberg and Peter Weller that I have not listened to in about 15 years. Okay. Uh, I'm sure probably somewhere in there there is, but I didn't, yeah, listen to it. Because I get, I get the sense that he goes, well, we're going to do film noir. Um, I'm, I'm a spy, so let's do detective things. But it's not necessarily even a spy. It's a reluctant spy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's forced upon him. Yes. He, yeah. He, he's... Which is, like, why I love all the little stuff. Like, his interactions with the typewriter when it's like, can you rub some of the powder on my lips? And he's like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, can you do me a favor? And he's got, like, the bottle in his hand ready to smash it. And he's just like, okay, I guess. (laughs) Like, just so resigned to... Yeah. And so minimalist. It's it's so great. Well, he's happy... Initially, he's happy to smash that that bug that's, that's trying to get him into the interzone and write reports and whatnot. Mm. But it's not until he has to flee because he killed his wife that he actually says, well, I, I got to be a spy now. Yes. But then it's like, yeah, then it falls into the whole discussion on, is this real or not? (laughs) That's what I mean. Like when I said before that the plot is kind of simple. If you pay attention. Yeah. Like there's so much crazy shit going on. Yeah. For example, a fucking butthole underneath a bug's carapace. How that's, that's, <laughs> and how it, great is, like, the fuzz hair around it? Yeah, yeah. Well. Oh, it's actually spectacular. Yeah. Uh, but so you kind of... It's like the Gruen transfer where you step into a shop. Yeah. And you're like, you wanted to buy this thing, but you step you step through the doors and you just got Gruen transferred and you go, I don't know what's happening. Yeah, uh, too many bright colors. What am I looking at? What was I here for initially? It's like that. So the, you know, all that happened there was... He says, some guy says, you can go to the interzone and write reports. And he says, no. But what you saw was a butthole <laughs> underneath the bug's carapace and a guy squashing it with his shoe. Well, after rubbing bug powder, which gets you high around its butthole lips. Yeah. Yeah. That's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. All well, while just going with the situation, um, even though he's actually well aware that, well, he believes he's just hallucinating. From the fumes of the bug powder. But that's that, what he says to Jerome when he gets back. He's like yeah. a fucking hallucinated man, like the fumes of that shit in there. But then he keeps but he still fall- goes with it. But then because he ends up falling down the rabbit hole where he then starts the narrative starts to blend of you don't know what is actually real and what's hallucination to the point that he himself begins to believe it. And it's even to the point of when um, Hank and Martin visit him in Interzone. They, that's, I love that scene so much because they are playing it as if they have just found their drug-addled friend on the sidewalk in New York and are playing it like we've gone back to his hotel and then they like him walking them t- to the bus to get out of Interzone and I think Hank, or one of them is saying to the other like, so we're leaving Interzone now to head back to New York, but Bill's staying? <laughs> like, they yeah. lay it out there as... Yeah. Ah, oh, so great. And the, uh, yeah, well, actually, let's talk about Interzone in, in New York. Okay. Because the sets, it's like, you know, the Interzone's like this kind of Middle Eastern atmosphere at times. But, but it's also this, like, weird, this weird 
New Yorkian feel to it sometimes as well, and you, sometimes you're looking at Middle Eastern things. Sometimes it's, you're looking at New York, and it's kind of yeah, it's sliding kind of, and washing over each other. Yeah, and all the Middle Eastern stuff is kind is being based off of um, Burroughs' time living in Tangier and things, and yeah. so that's it's trying to infuse it with both of those kind of elements, and yeah, it does it so wonderfully. And it, I mean, it's one of those films that is very clearly shot all on sound stages, but I love it because of that. It's so obvious that the it is. Style is gorgeous. Yeah, that's it. Those the alleyways. I, I was kind of drawn, pulled out a little bit with the alleyways. Mm. They were kind of too setty. Well, this was actually going to be Cronenberg's first film that he ever shot outside of Canada, and they were actually going to go to Morocco to shoot it. But then I think it or Morocco or it could have been Kuwait or somewhere. Um, but yeah, the US ended up invading, or there was something going on there, and they ended up having to not, and so they just stayed in Toronto and did it all on sound stages. Yeah, okay. And kind of, but that I think adds the style and the fact that it looks so much, so obviously shot on sound stages, like with the great like matte painting out the windows and things, like yeah. it just adds to the fifties noirness of it, like it the fifties style. And it's also like the reading from the pages of a book. Exactly, exactly. And also the abstract nature of, of the hallucination, or you know whether it is or not. Mm. It, so it, it is a benefit to the film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Cole was mentioning just before when uh, William Lee goes back to his house after hallucinating this this uh, bug at, at the police station there, yeah. where he's being questioned about the missing bug powder. And you, you know how Joan. At the start, says that the the bug powder is very literary. It's, it's a Kafka high. The fuck does that mean? <laughs> oh, okay, yes, okay. <laughs> no, but well, this is this is what just before you go on. Okay, yeah. no, no, go on, go on. Oh, like I, I have the very literal translation of like what that wonderful wordplay and joke is. Okay, um, it's Franz Kafka wrote Metamorphosis. Okay, which is a story about about a man slowly turning into a bug. Into a bug, yeah, yeah. So it's you snort, you inject the bug powder, and it's a it's a Kafka high. You feel like a bug. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice kind of... It, it's a literary person joke. Like, it's very... Yeah. That's a deep cut. Mm. That's a fucking deep cut. I love it. Uh, yeah, well, she says a lit, a lit, it's a literary high. Mm-hmm. And then when when Lee goes back to his house and he explains, oh, I, I think I just saw a hallucination. It was a bug with a butthole on, on its, uh, underneath its carapace. And I love when they both... When he walks in and Joan is having sex with, like, Martin or Hank... And then Martin or Hank is reading some books to them. And it's, it's like, um, it's like while you're on the drive... I, I forget which is which, but it's like, yeah, Kerouac is having sex with Joan while Ginsburg is reading his poetry. Yeah. It's not a book. It's, it's him reading his latest poetry that he's been writing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was, so I take from that that it's saying that, that reading while on these drugs is as awesome as sex. Yeah. Which is... And that's also what those guys just did a lot was get high and... Right, and, and read, read each read. other's writings. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy. But um, <laughs> but I love how, like, you, I mean, you're watching a film about people getting an awesome high off drugs and literature. And I was really just enjoying how much the film was saying writing is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, that works so well when you're reading a book. But when you're watching the film, I was like, and it still translates because he's talking about more than just film, uh, more than just literature, kind of any any creative medium, I suppose. Mm. But there was. What do you think about this? There was a 
a kind some kind of a disconnect where it was like I wonder if Cronenberg would have wanted to make in the ideal Naked Lunch how do you turn the typewriter into a film camera or do you know what I mean? I don't necessarily think it would have gone that far with him trying to infuse his chosen art form onto this especially because of what he's doing and how he's creating the film of trying to incorporate all of these different elements of uh, Burroughs' life. So the idea of pushing a more literary emphasis and trying to help celebrate literature and writing and having all of that brought into it, I think, is an added way to kind of help put up on a pedestal or kind of highlight Burroughs as opposed to highlighting, say, Cronenberg. Sure. I'm not saying that it's shit. No, 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 no. But I'm bad. saying, like, this was is my, like, why go that way? Yeah. And I think as well, like you mentioned earlier, um, Burroughs, like, the quoting that he like only found himself and became a writer after the death of Joan and it's kind of helping so because of that came out of a tragic event it's helping kind of make sense of that to some degree like be like it's worthwhile what you're doing it's just a shame it's like you know out of the ashes of this really horrible event I mm, guess yeah. and so literature and writing is what made you who you are so let's make that a very pivotal point of this okay if that makes sense yeah yeah no no exactly I'm not saying that um Cronenberg could have well it is a discussion on and as creativity well, as a whole and on Burroughs so of course you won't change and this is like Cronenberg never really gets meta on his own stuff like leaning into himself as an artist he just and like kind of never winks at you like that he just uses his art and the way that he interprets and tells stories to in his own twisted unique way to comment on other aspects of life like the brood is like one of the greatest divorce films ever made and it's just like about a horrible fucked up like shit is there body horror in that oh yeah oh yeah yeah the brood was kind of his big breakthrough into the mainstream it's like before scanners before videodrome it's like 76 i want to say stars oliver reed fucking great film uh it's also in criterion now so isn't like all of his films basically no no he's kind of in the same vein as um as the other david uh david lynch where it's like um couple of choice ones but then so you've got um going through like chronologically you've got the brood scanners videodrome Dead Ringers and Naked Lunch. So there's the five in there. Um, and I think post everything post Naked Lunch, and I kind of teased this at the beginning of the episode of why I think this is a transitional film for Cronenberg, because this is the biggest budget he'd had. It was the biggest kind of name cast he'd had, like, you know, biggest exposure and things, despite the fact that the film actually was a financial bomb like didn't actually do well at the box office yeah what it was the 16 million to make and it grossed like yeah it it really bombed but it's a and it's also Cronenberg adapting other people's work as opposed to writing something solely himself actually that's not true uh fucking The Fly came before this yeah The Fly probably more so but it's like that transitional thing post Naked Lunch you start to see things where it's him not necessarily doing his own stuff, but working with other people's materials and things and yeah, like, putting his own spin on it. Like Existence and yeah. um, History of Violence, uh, Eastern Promises, like all of the later period Cronenberg stuff. Crash by J.G. Ballard, like that, again, adapting from a novel. And Have you ever seen Crash? 
pretty sure I have. It's yeah. it's it's not the one about like isn't racism bad in Los Angeles. It's uh, a '90s film about people who get turned on by car accidents. Okay, oh, no, I haven't I haven't seen it with James Spader and Holly Hunter and yeah, there's a it's like loads I got to watch. That's a gnarly film. <laughs> Let's talk about the cast at large. Yep. Judy Davis. Oh my god, how great. And she is a national treasure, Judy Davis. She's kind of hot in this as well. Uh, in like a kind of weird way. Mm. But she has. When she's older too. She's yeah. Like a... Can we just leave it as Judy Davis is kind of hot? In that yeah. same way as like Tilda Swinton's kind of hot. Like, you know, yeah. you've got like that unconventional attractiveness to it. Like, yeah. Judy Davis has a sexuality, man. She's like fucking hot redhead. Yeah, she owns herself. Like, yeah, she's great. Colin Friels is a lucky man. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. That's, that's her husband. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's phenomenal in the film, in the dual role. Um, she yeah. plays the junkie really well. She plays... Uh, I mean, what she turns the into... brainwashed the voodoo. <laughs> yeah, well, she's, she's an interzone spy agent mm. as well, a writer. Oh, no, has been corrupted by Dr. Benway. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, well, Tom Frost, Ian Holmes' character, he's a writer in Interzone. Yes. Uh, and I take that to mean that, that he's also just a drug-addicted <laughs> New Yorker. No, no, they, they make it very clear at the beginning of uh, when um, that other weird guy is introduced. Like, he's like, who is that couple? And, and Kiki and stuff is helping introduce him. <coughs> They, they make an explicit point that uh, Tom Frost is there for the boys. He's not there for the drugs or for anything, but it's like they moved to Interzone because it was a place where you could un- uninhibitedly express and embrace your homosexuality and okay. kind of express that. Okay. He's cool with the drugs, like, give him that hash jam stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I think it's just they went in Rome, but it's, it's yeah, there is that explicit. He's here for the boys. Um, but Ian Home, man, what a lovely... There's the moment where his, um, his Marrakesh typewriter gets thrown out the window, and he comes up, and he just has the biggest, that's my Marrakesh. And he's just like, <laughs> oh, Bilbo! <laughs> Yes, like it's the My Mujahideen. Mujahideen, that was it, yeah. It's like, my Mujahideen. But he says it with the most Bilbo, like, I would like to see my ring one last time. <laughs> like, that sadness that he can fucking infuse. And he's like, God damn it! Like, runs up. Oh, so wonderful. I, I love Ian Holmes so much. He's... He's having a lot of fun. Actually, uh, it's, it's like the Brazil performance. Like, Sam, don't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, the, exactly. He has that wonderful sadness that he can get across. <laughs> He it's, definitely makes me want to hug him. Yeah. He reminds me of my mum. He's so good. Um, he's Yeah, he's having a really good time. Mm. They all are. Yeah, especially, Julian Especially Sands. Roy Scheider at the end. <laughs> <laughs> we're, going, we're going straight to Roy Scheider. Well, I mean, Dr. Benway, when he, he's kind of... I mean, he, Roy Scheider is at the time a kind of really big name. I'm like, I love that if you look at his IMDb, it's like Naked Lunch and then right after, straight on to Sequest DSV. <laughs> it's like two things that couldn't be further apart. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But then, yeah, the like, he's so... He's so straight as Dr. Benway at the start, and you're like, oh, he's just kind of... This it's is almost the... like a cameo or Yeah, because you see in the opening credits, it's and Roy Scheider. So like, oh, he's just going to be in this just a little... guest starring. Yeah. And then... <laughs> When he tears off the, the disguise at the end. Yeah. 
He's a cigar-chomping villain. Yeah, yeah. With this massive grin, and I've never seen him like that before, and I like it. Mm. He's a he's a he was such a wonderful wonderful actor that I think um, didn't get the credit he was due. I think right. he was always the supporting guy. Like I mean, you look or like you know overshadowed by larger things happening in other films around him, like in Jaws, French Connection, overshadowed by Gene Hackman and things. But it's just like. He's so wonderful. In every single thing he does, he was great. He's one of the best supporting actors ever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in the few times that he got his his kind of moment in the spotlight, they never kind of connected with him. But, like, Sorcerer is a perfect example. Mm. Like, have you ever seen that one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's amazing in that film. But it's... Yeah, the the story of that film is the, the hellish production and things. And so that, like, overshadowed, like... Just enjoy the film and enjoy him. Like, don't, yeah. I think he's shown pretty well in Jaws. There was no, there's no lead in Jaws. Jaws is an ensemble. You can't have, you can't remove it in one of those three guys. I know, but it's, I think Robert Shaw is going so broad with... Yeah, everyone remembers Robert Shaw. As opposed to, Roy Shard is playing it so believable and great. Like, I, I'm with you because I fucking love, <laughs> I love Chief Brody, but... And because you've got essentially like Dreyfus is playing like the nerd character, Robert Shaw is playing the drunken sea captain, and Scheider is essentially playing the straight, straight man. man. Exactly. But he does it so fucking well and manages to imbue that character with such life and interest. Like, sorry, now we're just talking about Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> what about Scheider? I think he's wonderful. Yes. But yeah, he, he really sinks his teeth into this role. So the thing about Jaws, though, is... <laughs> yeah, that it's the greatest film ever made. It's the greatest film ever made. Where do we go from here? Well, so we can keep going with the cast, because the cast does such a great job. Mm-hmm. Julian Sands, the, he's like the, the predatory gay guy, mm-hmm. dressed up all fancy. O- also a human centipede. Yes. Um... <laughs> His role was really enthralling in that I didn't take... Like, William Lee, when he goes in to have his, his meetings with... What's the guy's name? Julian Sands' character. Yves? Um, Yves? I can't remember. Criterion booklet. What are people's names? Woo! Uh, Yves Cloak. Yves. Cloaky. Yeah, uh, uh, actually, I got nothing to say about that. That's what I mean. Like the Julian set, like it's <laughs> it's a necessary character, but he doesn't. He's good in it, but it's not a standouty kind of performance, I guess. Well, I think that scene where there's no warlock. Okay, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I haven't seen that. We're not we're still talking about other movies. <laughs> Shit, that's the only other Julian Sands film I know. <laughs> that's why I wanted to throw it out. <laughs> But that scene where uh, Lee takes Kiki to meet him and there's like this weird predator thing going on and William Lee manages to just go, yeah, Kiki, go with him. It's it's an exchange. Yeah, but it's... It's like a noir. It's an exchange. He is getting... For information, it will cost you... A a gay boy. Yeah, a little twink. (laughs) A little Tom Sizemore looking twink. Yeah, but I, I mean, at that, at that point, prior to that, I was thinking Lee's an alright character, but he's just, like, re- willing to throw away 
Yeah, he well, he's become the anti-hero at that point. He has become the detective in the noir, or like you know the spy in the thriller. He, you have to do some bad shit to be able to get through your mission. So yeah, okay. he's hit that point. Yeah, he didn't fully know what he was handing over. No, he no, didn't. That's, that's <laughs> fair. And he is shaken to his core. That's fair. Mm. Oh, the... Can we talk about the ending? The 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 very. Ending when they're in the weird snowplow car thing going to Anexia. Yeah. And it's the, the, the next place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like so just on the nose and wonderful, but it's the the retelling of the William Tell scene again. I think that is such a beautiful way to wrap up this film and it it kind of it's Cronenberg, I think, really hammering home the the burrows of it all and like the like what he's doing with the film and burrows text is it's taking it's essentially he's now the bill lee is essentially burrows now like Mm -hmm. he's he's now off on his life and he needed to again do this act to become like burrows said to become the person he is going to be become like it's an inevitability i i took it as i took it as uh burrows the writer is destined to relive that horrible night over and over and over again so that he can continue. Oh, that's right. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of gross and evil and disgusting in a way um, and upsetting because, you know, a tragic thing had to happen mm. and he and he's destined to just constantly just sub- be submerged, uh, drowned by it. To be the like who he is, I guess. Yeah. So that's what I took of that. Mm. It's just kind of if you if you want to take the whole film as a hallucination, it's all in the head of William Lee or Burroughs. He's never able. Then to... he's he's constantly just reliving that evening. Yeah. Uh, and it's just it's just you know. If he's wanting... positive feedback loop of of reliving that evening, drug use, writing. Yeah. Do it. Just do those three things. This on cycle. loop. Yeah. Um, that's how how'd you take that that ending because it is like kind of fucking what yeah well like I said I, I kind of viewed it as the idea of yeah no, contextually knowing the borrower's quote about having to go through that William Tell thing to become the person that he was and okay. to become the writer he was that that's Cronenberg essentially like we need to go through this again so this can happen mm. I guess well, I mean, yeah, you can take it any number of ways. The, oh, yeah. the thing that I really love about these movies, I, I'm such a fucking sucker for surrealism in general. Yeah. But I just love the fact that it doesn't hold your hand and you, it gives you tastes of things and you have to, you realize that you're going to have to maybe rewatch the film and explore things because it's really not going to let you... It's not going to just put it out on a platter and go, like, here's your meal. Yeah, exactly. A- eat up. Um, so is this one you reckon you, you'll go back and you'll rewatch? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, well, yes. Oh, certainly, yes. <laughs> um, for two reasons. One, because there's a bunch of strange creative ideas that hint at the creative process. Mm-hmm. And it's all packaged up. It's not even packaged. It's kind of just like, just you're going to have to sift out through the, it. Yeah, yeah. Like you would in a garbage fucking bin. <laughs> but at the same time, throughout is like these wonderfully juvenile adolescent 
it's sparks of imagination. It, it's such a wonderful Tom film. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really... Yeah, yeah. Like, like a slimy... Butthole typewriter. But, yeah, well, yeah. Oh, we haven't even talked about the, the weird sex typewriter as well. The, the, the Mujahideen. Well, that's what I was... My head was in, like, right, right now. Oh, okay, yep, yeah. Yeah, slimy, slimy, weird, skin-covered um, centipede with really ripe buttocks. <laughs> Like a dick coming out of the butt. Yeah. <laughs> the dick butt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so... I would go back just to watch that scene. That scene. Just because it's exciting. And the design of the mugwumps as well is so awesome. Yeah. They, they... they exude another drug, which is... The mugwump jism. Yeah, the jism. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Well, that's what Doc, Dr. Benway found out. There's something more lucrative than the... um. And the black maiden, that is... That's why he's so excited when he takes this. He's like, have I told you about the jism? <laughs> <laughs> that guy you met a week ago, he's loving it. Yeah. He strapped himself to... He is literally sucking <laughs> on a mug one dick. <laughs> How great is that scene where, like, it comes out of his mouth and he's trying to explain and you just see, like, these little spurts of shit going out. Oh, I love it so much. I'll, I'll rewatch it just for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ebert gave it two and a half stars. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have you got his quote? I, I do. I, yeah. uh, and I was really surprised, actually, by that, because I, I think this is a, he's a fucking he's a, masterpiece. He went through a weird period. He he struggles with some stuff. Like, he fucking hated and panned, like, Blue Velvet and things. Stuff that he finds a little bit too confronting, He or, like, hypersexualized or some weird imagery, he just can't deal with, it turns out, which is kind okay. of weird and surprising. That does surprise me. But yeah, This he, is the man that wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and he's kind of weirded out by hypersexual stuff yeah. anyway <laughs> by buttholes underneath bug carapaces yeah what's with him come on whatever <laughs> um, no no he, he said in quote I felt repelled by the material on a visceral level mm-hmm. there is so much dryness death and despair here right and yeah there is there is it's a pretty nasty film to look at um, well, it's not though. It's, it's not. not. It's, it's not. It's not at all. Like the it's, lighting you, is actually quite beautiful. You can't. Aesthetically, it's, he, it's he's not wrong. There is a lot of death and wallowing and sadness and bleakness in the film. But if you choose to latch onto that, which I never do in my interpretation, I'm like you. I latch onto the kind of weird creativity and the kind of message at it of to write and to find yourself and to go. Mm. That's that's what I connect with and go with that. Well, that well, well, how, but how else are you going to take, you know, the the typewriters with anuses and the as in turning typewriters like the thing that literally helps you create and write, it turning into a sexualized thing. To, like you know, it's so on the nose. But I guess if you don't, and, and if it doesn't so, connect with you, then all the body horror is really silly. You know, yeah, and it is. Juvenile and adolescent. And- but that being said, it is toned down from usual Cronenberg body horror. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, it's nowhere near as hardcore as Scanners, Videodrome, The Fly. Like, nothing will be as hardcore as The Fly, ever. But it's like, it, it's still those elements of Cronenberg and the body horror there, but it is toned down, mm-hmm. which is, I find kind of weird that, yeah. I'm intrigued. I don't really know why. Cronenberg has such a strong desire to to fool around with this body horror stuff. Um, I, I I take it as it is. There's like an adolescence about it, like a this is this is just fun. Mm. 
And this just happens to be my sensibilities. And I can use this as a way to tell multiple different stories and different but, in different genres and right. yet still incorporate this kind of style. But I think on a deeper level, because um, I, I also, a lot of my art that I do is also mm. weird body horror shit. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to think about like, oh, okay, Burroughs is doing the same thing in his novel. And I was wondering, well, I wonder if they're drawn to the idea that they're talking about the drug-addled mind and its frailty. And I'm wondering whether it's like these two people, Cronenberg and Burroughs, just think that the body is kind of... The body always wins over mind. And it's it can be like a disgusting thing that... I mean, it's some people, you know, like some, if you like speak to some people, the body's a beautiful machine. It's perfect in every way. When it's just a hunk of it, it's, meat slowly dying. Yeah. It, 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 it kind of <laughs> is. It's gross. And so you take, you take, you look at it like that. I'm not saying that it's, that everybody's disgusting. No, no. But, but it is. But it, there, like, you know, when you eat a massive meal and you just feel fucking gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's your body. <laughs> yeah. And your mind has, has, has submitted to your body at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what the body horror comes from. It's just... It's yeah. fun. It's playful. It, it you can, fun. And you can use it as a way... Like, you can have fun with it and also use it as a means to tell the delve into weird shit. Like, The Fly is one of the best films ever about death. Mm. And it's like... I know people, like, extrapolate it's like an AIDS allegory and things. Like, watching someone slowly decay and die a horrible death. Like, it's... Beautiful. Like, it's fucking amazing that he's trying to tell this story through, like... His fucking fingernails are coming off. Like, it's so <laughs> hardcore. His body is literally rotting and turning into this giant fly creature. But it is this giant... Al- it's an allegory because the the main crux of that film is following Gina Davis dealing with it. It's her coming to terms with someone she loves dying. That's what that film's about. It just so happens to have... Like, Jeff Goldblum, like, Jeff vomiting Goldblum's on donuts, being like, this is how Brundle Fly eats. Cronenberg... You're a Canadian treasure. I love you. <laughs> Never change. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh my god, he's so good. Yeah, I, I love this movie so much. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty goddamn great. Yeah. And you've finally seen it now. <laughs> Do you want to hear a little bit of trivia? Sure. Uh, so the film was nominated for the Golden Bear at the 1992 Berlin Film Festival. Uh, it was nominated for and won an absolute shitload of Genie Awards, which are the Canadian Film Industry Awards. Uh, including Best Picture, Best Director, all of those. Uh, it was also nominated for five awards at the National Society of Film Critics, uh, Best Film, Best Supporting Actress for Judy Davis, uh, Best Cinematography, and it won Best Director and Best Screenplay. So despite the fact that it was a kind of financial bomb, a lot of people really dug it, which is kind of cool. It's not very accessible, is it? No, no, but it, it's nice. It's, it's a similar thing as like Brazil, like one that it's so weird, it's dealing with so many interesting things. And yet there is a pocket of people that fucking love it. It's also absurdist surrealism. Yeah. Um, Then I've got a whole bunch of other stuff that we kind of really just brought up a lot anyway. Like the fact that they were going to shoot it in Morocco and blah, blah, blah. Um, Cronenberg originally wanted to try and make this film back in the 80s, actually. And he first met producer Jeremy Thomas then. And then kind of it took this long to eventually kind of get it done like 10 years or so mm. but yeah that, that's really about it I've got for trivia most of the stuff we've kind of already brought up so yeah did you want to, did we ever go through the differences in the book or we don't really need to 
No, there's so many that it's not it's even... I'm, I'm going to read the book. Yeah, I, I've, I've got the book here. I brought it along for Tom to borrow, so yeah. enjoy. And then after you're done, I can um, lend you Junkie, if you're interested. Burroughs has a really weird writing style in... Uh, basically, he was inspired by painters in the idea that... like he, I, Wonderful quote from him where he said, Literature is always 50 years behind painting or any okay. other art form. And so he was inspired by a painter who was... I forget the name of him... But he was essentially, like, cutting through some stuff, like, you know, to get... Like, cutting through some newspaper to lay out. And he noticed that when he cut through the squares, some sentences from, like, multiple pages would line up and you could keep reading across. So that's how Burroughs ended up writing. He would just cut and paste random pages and stuff all across and just make a book that way. Just see what happened. Yep. (laughs) That's so good. It's real interesting stuff, like, where his writing ends up going... Later in his career, so... So, I mean, the extreme <laughs> of that is you would just have, like, a, a mess... Yes. A mess of a book, but then you could try and curate it a bit, and, depending on how we feel And the, the theory is, after you finish reading it, it will all make sense. Like, you will have picked up all the pieces to the puzzle, and... Or it's just, I mean, you're kind of facilitating an experiment of your own mind. Essentially, yeah. Which is such a good idea. Mm. Uh, way down the line in the collection, actually, they've recently released um, a documentary on Burroughs called Burroughs the Movie uh, from, I think, the late 80s, mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. Really great doco about him. Um, so if you want to know more, I'd, I'd highly recommend checking out that as well. Yeah, Learn I'm, a little I'm bit super more intrigued. Yeah, I'm super intrigued. Yeah. He's a really fascinating guy. And I know Ben Foster, the actor, is uh, writing and directing and starring in a movie about him coming up soon. I'm excited for He's played him once before in that uh, Kill Your Darlings movie where uh, Daniel Radcliffe played William S. Uh, sorry, played um, Ginsburg. Okay. Yeah. Heaps of shit. Heaps one. of shit. Burroughs is great. But uh, I guess we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. So it's still in print from Criterion as a two-disc DVD or a one-disc Blu-ray. Comes with the features of a... Audio commentary featuring Cronenberg and actor Peter Weller. Uh, Making Naked Lunch, the London television documentary about the making of the film. Illustrated essay about the special effects in Naked Lunch, um, as well as a collection of original marketing materials. William S. Burroughs' audio recordings of an excerpt from Naked Lunch, a collection of archival stills of Burroughs from the Ginsburg Trust, and a massive booklet and essay by a bunch of people. Like Criterion usually do. Okay. Yeah. So that will help you try and understand it, uh, <clears throat> I suppose. Yeah. But uh, great film. Thumbs up. Yep. Go watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess that will probably wrap us up for this wonderful, messy, all over the shop episode on Naked Lunch, <laughs> which I think is kind of fitting for the film and the book. Mm-hmm. So, but we'll be back in a fortnight's time with another. Kurosawa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got Ikaru next. Yes, I've never seen it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm, it's going to be great, obviously. Yeah, so. it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful little Kurosawa film, this one. I, I really love it, so I'm looking forward to you guys watching it. And So I guess tune in a fortnight's time to listen to thoughts on that. But uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time. <laughs>